I had long since begun to regret being chosen, wishing Zykos in my place, when between one heartbeat and the next, Moira appeared. Eugenides, said Moira, and I heard for the first time what the oracle's voice only echoed. Tell me again why you pester the great goddess. I ask humbly for instruction, he replied. You ask to have all things made plain to you. How is that humble? Asking for guidance is not humble? Asking may be. Expecting an answer is not. I no more than hope, goddess. Lies, lies, Eugenides. Here is your answer, then, humblest of mortals. You will fall as your kind always fall when your god lets you go. Now you know what many men do not. Thanks for the vague advice. Welcome back, duped tutors. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to help you recover from Return of the Thief. It's November 7th, 2021, and today we are discussing Chapter 4 of Return of the Thief. I had something to bring up that when I read the book for the first time, I was like, there's too much in this book for me to remember to bring this up until we get to the podcast, but <laughs> I want Noelle's opinion on this. When Ferris is giving us a little bit more background, he says that uh, the king's apartment uh, had been, like, before the king got into it. Um, he... Oh, yes! yeah! Yes! <laughs> Noel is making, like, gestures at me. So it says, uh, like, oh, the king hadn't moved into the, what had been traditionally the Aetolian king's apartments that the queen was in, because she had seized those appointments upon taking the throne, and he had declined to move into the traditional queen's appointments, apartments, which we already know, but that he had moved into apartments that were usually occupied by minor or more distant relatives of the king, and then immediately followed by a complete contradiction. It had previously belonged to Atolia's older brother and had been empty since his death. So, interesting. A few different points here. What is this immediate contradiction? It's usually an apartment for unimportant people but was previously inhabited by a prince of Atolia, the second most important or third most important person in this whole kingdom. And also, why, what nuance, what extra layer of importance does this add to Jen's having this apartment? What is this? What do you think about this? It makes me really curious about Atolia's relationship with her brother. Like, yeah. I hadn't really thought about it before. Yeah. We knew that she had brothers yes. at some point and, and they, that were they are now dead assassinated yeah by her fiance maybe maybe uh, i you know there are so many assassinations in these books i lose track yeah there's that feels right or they were at least assassinated by other political rivals an assassination in every pot uh and but i hadn't i hadn't thought twice about it because people are just getting uh, knifed left and right and for some reason, this makes me think, uh, it makes me wonder about whether she was close with him. Mm. This particular brother. Yeah. Not to be grim, but I think we actually learn further in this book that she, like, most of her family died. Right? Doesn't Relius teach Ferris later that most other contenders for the throne, i.e. her family, died in the civil strife? Yeah. And he chose, I mean, we've already seen this, we saw this in King of Atolia, but he chose to take 
small apartments that are far from her. Like he could have he could have supplanted her in the in the traditional king's apartments, which he didn't want to do. But he could have taken the next door apartments. Yeah. The the queen's ones, but he didn't do that either. He lives way out of the way, mm-hmm. tucked into a little corner. And that fits with how he wants to be as removed from from all the pomp and uh, surveillance as he can be. But also, like, he's further from his wife. You know, I think as the series goes on, and we kind of see up up until this book that, you know, in King of Atoli, we kind of think that's true. But up to here... We see, you know, as he becomes the, the center of the court and all that, you know, the pomp just follows them in here. And then, you know, he does live with Atolia in the apartments, her apartments, and she comes here and whatever. So they are, they're not really as removed as everyone thinks at first. Mm-hmm. So why do you think, since those two reasons are kind of not really as prominent as we once thought they were in King of Atolia, why do you think he still lives here? I mean, I guess it does still face towards Edis, but, you know, a few books on, he's more in the court, he is a lot busier, Edis is visiting a lot more than she used to. Yeah, but... He doesn't... That missing home probably yeah. never goes away. Oh, another thing that we see in this chapter is his accent again. Yes. He goes to speak to the goddess, and when he's speaking to Moira, he uh, he loses the fake Atolian accent. Yeah. Which that, I always, I find that so, uh, it gets me where I live. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I had another question. Do you think, you know, this is this is a little, we don't get the answer to this in the book, but do you think once the twins are born... He moves into the royal apartments to be near the kids. And where do you think the kids are? This, the royal nursery? This takes I, us back listen. to, are their kids going to be, uh, you know, breastfed by wet nurses yeah. and, and, and raised by by other people? I have questions! If that might be the case. <laughs> Who knows? Also, on the room's front, um, Ferris talks about the royal apartments and how, since the queen is in what were traditional apartments of the kings of Atolia, her female attendants have precedence in what were traditionally the waiting rooms of the king's attendants. So those waiting rooms, or room, I don't know, uh, is decorated with war scenes, and the room that the king's attendants is assigned are assigned to wait in is decorated with scenes of pastoral beauty and femininity. Right! Yeah, that's really interesting. Which means something also. <laughs> and Ferris is talking about how the the when the when Atolia comes to see the king, there's kind of this mixing of the attendants, but most yeah. of the time where he is is just men. It's raining men. Yeah. <laughs> there are all dudes. It's a proud house. Yeah. And they hang out, they they drink heavily every night. Every night. And yeah. they play cards. Is it any wonder Jen feels penned in? You know, the attendants are always complaining, but it really doesn't seem like that hard of a job. Yeah. And Ferris says in this chapter, oh, just like the other attendants, I was free to come and go whenever I wanted. Yeah. 
and they're like assigned days to wait on him but they have a bunch of free time it looks like mm. doesn't sound that bad considering the other career choices in this world <laughs> yeah they do a lot of kicking back in the break room which i respect <laughs> oh although ferris is he's having a rough time in this chapter He's in physical agony from all the walking. He's so tired. He's falling asleep, sitting down next to the king in all these meetings. He's spending all his time, like, miserable enough to be crying, just everywhere. And he feels He's like everybody's child. looking at him and laughing at him. He says yeah. he feels seen in a way he had never been before. Yeah. This, this description of how... How vulnerable he is, how miserable he is, how homesick he is. Just, just, what a horrible time he's having is what has, one of the things that's really convinced me of how young I think he is as a character at this point. You know, other people yeah. have said, like, oh, I think he's 14. Like, no, I really do not think he's 14. Yeah. This is where I think, like, you know, I don't think he's six, but I think he could be eight. Yeah. I think he could be 10. I and, don't know. And he's without his mother, essentially, right. for the first time in his life. Yeah. Someone he was with every single day for the rest, for his whole life before this. And the only person that he finds to relate to is Eugenides. Mm -hmm. He sees that uh, Jen feels penned in like he does. Right. And pretends to be less savvy than he is just like he does and mm -hmm. ferris does a lot of um he when they tell him to do stuff he pretends that he just doesn't understand the instructions he does it wrong on purpose so that they'll eventually just stop asking him to do stuff mm -hmm. and uh and jen sees right through him and decides we're gonna have this kid start meeting with a tutor yeah and so he pretends to just not understand any of the things the tutor is trying to teach him. Mm -hmm. And I love that he says that he uh, he's deliberately omitted the tutor's name. Yeah. Because <laughs> he doesn't want to be mean to the guy. <laughs> Some names have been changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> That's what keeps uh, Ferris safe. Or at least that is that is what he, in his experience, has kept him safe. Right. Because then he can't be blamed for anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, the garden is a haven for both Jen and Ferris in this chapter. Um, and it um, it made me think of a, a concept I remembered from um, my French medieval literature class in college of uh, a locus amoinus, which is uh, it's Latin for pleasant place, and it's it's. Not a literary trope, but it's something Wikipedia calls a literary topos, which is a literary argument. And it's this idealized place of safety or comfort that's usually nature. It's can be a beautiful shady lawn or open woodland. It's sometimes it has connotations of an Eden. It can be like a, a landscape of the mind or like a juxtaposed with like urban life or something like a haven, like... Mm -hmm. And it is very, like, it's in the middle of the, the palace, but yeah. it's just kind of, like, almost like they're leaving it. And they hang out there together, and they get dirt on their pants. Yeah. And Jen is watching Ferris, you know? Like, he sees yeah. Ferris. Also, side note, the Queen's Garden is much bigger than I had always imagined it to be. Yeah. Yeah! yeah. You know, like, it has multiple fountains. It's big enough to get, not 
lost in, I guess, but for the attendants to have to go search for them. Yeah. You know? You can probably be in the garden and feel as if you are not like a natural space, because I'm sure that it's very um, cultivated and neat, but you could maybe not see, like, palace walls. Yeah. And Ferris, on top of everything else that he's experiencing, still feels that he is in mortal danger every second. Right. And the the facts bear that out. Like, Jen keeps him close because he says, I don't want anybody pitching you out a window when I'm not looking. And we get it casually thrown in there that, like, oh, Jen had been feverish a few days before and was denying it. Yeah. All right. They go, they decide to walk to the temple. Um, because Jen will do anything to get out of writing, and also he feels that it's appropriate as a humble petitioner, blah, blah, blah. And he takes Ferris with him into the sanctuary. And then they both see Moira, and the acolyte does not. Mm-hmm. And Eugenides, he again sees Ferris. He sees Ferris see Moira, and he says, oh, you're full of surprises. Yeah. I love the description of her. Her shawl was a thousand colors. Yeah, and the pattern shifted, dressed all in white. Even her hairstyle and the the pen tucked into her belt were described, so I just love that we're getting, even here, we're getting more and different types of description than we have before. Mm-hmm. And she's still like, dude, why did you call me? <laughs> I'm busy. Why do you think she shows up? Why does she tell him this? True. You know? She doesn't answer his question. It feels like net zero info. Right. <laughs> you, I could have told you that. And Jen takes it to mean, I will die of a fall. And then Atolia reminds him, men fall in battle, they fall ill. That could mean anything. Yeah. Atolia is saying this is net zero information. Yeah. And she, but she does show up. Yeah. And she expresses to him that it is arrogant for him to expect an answer. But I'm going to come here and answer you. I'm going to come in and I'm going to say something. I mean, the gods do care about, I mean, we're, I think we've come back to an important question, which is how much is he a tool of the gods and how much is he like a precious being you know like yeah in what way do they care about him and it feels like like moira does have empathy for him yeah like she kind of admonishes him here but gently he's a hammer that might have a few precious stones on the handle but it's still a hammer yeah maybe your favorite hammer (laughs) oh hey caitlin guess what's in this chapter is it lesbians? It's lesbians. <laughs> it's such a brief little mention, but it did bring me a lot of joy. And I was, I got to the page and I just stopped and I I read it ten times just trying to figure out if I was reading it right. Where's the catch? And if I was like, is it is it two women or is it a man and a woman? Is it just a typo? Or, <laughs> We're or so am used I, to getting nothing! Are my wildest dreams right here? <laughs> I really appreciate that her poetry is terrible, too. It's good. And, they're, they're, you know, the attendants are having kind of these elaborate romances and social dynamics. And even the guys who are married, there are two of them who... There's one of them has a wife who is there and comes to visit sometimes. And, um, you know, just, like, comes by while they're working. And, uh... 
two of the other attendants working quote unquote yeah (laughs) playing cards and drinking and uh the two of the other ones have wives that live in the country so they can just like kind of live fast and loose and all this ferris i'm sure that jen is aware of everything i'm sure that he could make a whole like chart like on the l word of (laughs) but uh ferris feels that it's important enough to write down there are likely real world explanations for why this book has more casual inclusion of same-sex relationships than the previous ones but in universe it's really interesting that ferris as the guy who is writing this he feels perfectly comfortable talking about this stuff whereas previous narrators had left it out mm-hmm. and i wanted to bring up he he presents these relationships in kind of like a a factual way but also just as part of a like presenting the way he's looking at the world much of the conversation was boring philologos pined for a young woman named jersey without any sympathy for me verimius pursued the poet Livia, who wrote terrible poetry about celia one of the queen's attendants some things i saw i did not yet understand why a guard stared at laetaris the second son of baron zortix and why laetaris pretended so poorly not to notice the other guards in Aristotle's squad watched them both with expressions I couldn't read. So, this is more about like this. I guess is underscoring Ferris's youth. Yeah, how... that's another thing that uh, suggests that he's very young. Like he doesn't quite get like. And it also may, maybe, that particular relationship is like okay. He understands something went on between these two people but he doesn't understand like oh this is part of like a treason plot yeah or whatever (laughs) and there's more about the attendants in this chapter that these three attendants were rehabilitating themselves these three these four attendants were uh like followers and not really trying to rehabilitate themselves and these three had burned their bridges and were still troublemakers and then there was ferris so they have 12 attendants. Yeah. Which is a lot of people to be followed around. And everybody loves Philologos. Ah, the favorite. <laughs> oh, I, I really enjoy when Atelia suggests maybe your cousin Cleon, whose socks could be an attendant. <laughs> and Jenny kind of like pretends to think about it and then says, we already have a guy named Cleon. So wouldn't it be confusing if we had two Cleons? Oh, an important quote. There was always a deep conflict in Eugenides' nature between his ruthlessness and his compassion. Neither characteristic was ever dominant for long. Yeah, and Ferris, he, he sees that and gets that so fast. Whereas, right. like, the, the attendants who don't like him are still like, he doesn't understand how to rule, and right. he just listens to Atolia. And... and we get another really interesting, like, almost kind of hidden piece... Like kind, like, kind of blink and you miss it piece about, like, Jen asks this question about, like, oh, can I go into battle? And then he's talking about it with Atolia. Um, and I think he says, like, oh, it's it's contemptible to send men into battle and not risk my own life. And she says, is it? With her voice leached of emotion, implying, you know, like, okay, that's what I've been doing my whole career. Yeah, yeah. You know? So... I think it's important to keep an eye on that because that's definitely one of the bigger themes of this war is, you know, 
Jen is kind of pursuing this whole battle question as a is some type of fighting over another type more or less moral? Is there a more or less moral way of killing people or sending people to die? Is holding a sword in your own hand versus giving an order? And while all this is happening, Baron Hippias, the secretary of the archives, went to bed and was found dead in the morning. That's how the, the chapter ends. Yeah. And, like, there's so much going on and so much detail about these these little uh, interpersonal relationships between the attendants and all of Jen's stuff and, and uh, his anxieties. And, by the way, the secretary of archives, a.k.a. the master of spies, uh, he's dead. Yeah, and Aaron Deities is starting to move. Yeah. Events in the wider world are starting to circle. Also, we get introduced to the pent. Oh, right. It just keeps coming. Just keeps coming. <laughs> Please, gods, no one tell that pent what happened to Nahuzaresh. <laughs> People are so, like, the idea that Eugenides is incompetent is so stubborn. You'd think that it would, it would get out that that is not true. Yeah. And then people would adjust their behavior accordingly in general. But there's always another guy who's like, oh, 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 he won't play such games with me. And also, like, the fact that the queen's reputation has not penetrated to the pent is also, like, a separate... How did that happen? Yeah. Question. <laughs> He's so confident. <laughs> we also get in this chapter a Costas mention... When those attendants are yeah! like, dissing Jen, hanging out with filthy Oakloy. Well, Costas was a patronoy. Costas and his friends should have been hanged. Two olive trees and a goat don't make an estate. Yeah. Um, and then Ferris says, like, oh, I remember this because Clopius was on duty standing by the door when they said that. And Clopius is one of the men who got killed later at the road trans roadside shrine. Oh, yeah. I love that little bit. Oh, my like, God. I remember right? this because this guy's going to die later after the king gets ambushed. Just by the way, that's going to happen. My mom read that and came into my room and was like, what is this? <laughs> what is this? And I was like. Right? <laughs> Am I missing something? Or do we not know what this is yet? And it's like, we don't know what this is yet. And uh, Anatolia is talking about why it's so important that Jen stay alive. And that why right. Jen is the, the linchpin of the treaty. Because Edis cannot force her barons to bow to me, nor can Sunus. I cannot force mine to bow to them. Not even to stop the Mede will they unite, except through you. The Edesians accept you as High King over your cousin who is Edis because you are Edesian. The barons of Sunus may not like to see their king bow to you, but they know that otherwise they would be ruled by the Mede. My barons do not like a foreign king, but they comfort themselves with the fact that the king of Atolia is Annex. So all of these little things have to happen. It's okay. gotta be this guy. Right. Okay, yeah. We really get in this book that in a way that we don't get in the others, the fact that Edis is, like, a violent society. Yeah. And, I mean, it's not just Edis. It's the other countries, too. But that's just wild.
chapter four next time a night at the theater send us your comments questions thoughts chime in at atelianarchives.tumblr.com be blessed in your endeavors For listening, this has been an amateur embroidery production. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available. <laughs>